Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, C4. So glad that you're here with us this morning and want to say again, good morning to many of you watching, listening online for all sorts of reasons. We're glad that you're with us this morning. Well, as you've heard, we are in this brand new series uh, called Promises, and we're going to be in the book of Haggai. It may take a few minutes if you have a paper Bible to find that, so you can begin that now. Virtually, you'll get it in 2.2 seconds, but uh, go ahead and do that. This is a very different series in many ways, because usually when a pastor or a leader gets up and talks about the promises of God, usually it's at the beginning of the process. That is that we are seeking out what the promises of God are for us, but they're not in effect yet. Or many times we gather and we celebrate because the promises given by God have actually happened among us. But this series is completely different. This series is actually about living in the middle. This series is about actually when we've started to see the promises partly fulfilled, we see the end coming, but we're in the middle waiting for culmination. So like Joanna just said, and it's absolutely right, today is March 1st. We see that spring is coming, right? We can see it. Last week I heard birds singing. It gave me hope in my soul that there is hope in general. We have lived through the majority of the winter. Spring is coming, and so we're living in the middle. It's like my wife at six months of pregnancy. One day when she was pregnant with Noah, she walked up to me and she said, Get this baby out of me. I said, I cannot do that. She said, I want it out now. I said, I'm sure you do. See, we had wanted a third child. God had graciously given us one. The promise was being experienced, and yet the end was in sight, but we were in the middle. It's like when you were in school. Maybe you still are in school. You had a major project, or you had to write a thesis, or you had a major sort of study to do, and you'd begun strong, and you could see the end, but there was so much work to to be done. Or weight loss. Let's say you had to lose 100 pounds, and you've lost 60, which is unbelievable, but there's 40 to go. See, this whole series is about living not in the not yet and not what happened yesterday, but in the middle of good things, and yet we're still struggling to keep going. That's why we're going to look out of the book of Haggai. Now, I want to say right up front, I'm doing something I actually never do. I only preached out of this book two years ago, and I never go back so soon to a book. But as I was praying even a year ago, and we've been in dialogue, I feel compelled, constrained. I feel unbelievably, like in a strong way, that this book is for us as this church in this season. Why Haggai? Simply because it is the story of God's own people walking in the middle of promises which had been partly experienced, yet not fully. Why Haggai? Because in this book, God speaks into the middle. In this book, he speaks into the middle of his people's journey, and he sets their priorities right once again. And he reminds his people of his faithfulness through promises already given, and he inspires them to keep going. Why Haggai and why for C4? Because the promises given in that time to God's people are the promises we need to hear once again among us. We need to believe them and we need to claim them over our church. This series is like a tailor-made suit for this church in this season. This series is about God's work that has already begun among us and we've already begun to celebrate. It is happening and yet what is to come has not fully happened. 
And so it's living in this good middle. Now, the story of Haggai is very important and very interesting. It begins a hundred years before he comes on the scene. In 586 BC, Israel had already gone through a civil war. Israel was in the north, Judah was in the south. Judah decided to rebel against the superpower of its day called Babylon. Babylon was so taken by their small little rebellion, they came in and they destroyed all of Judah. The temple was destroyed, everything in the north and the south eventually is destroyed, and the people of God are taken into captivity. Now, if you read the backstory, you'll realize something else had happened. The people of God had decided, they had decided that worshiping other gods was better than their own God. And so God gave them over to Babylon. Now, one of the great voices of that time was Jeremiah the prophet. And Jeremiah the prophet was told by God, though, that even though God was going to judge his people For a period of time, he promised him very clearly in 70 years, he would bring them back to this land to full return and full restoration and full temple worship. And it happened. If you read your Bible, the first wave, 70 years later after Jeremiah, come back through a leader called Ezra. Ezra comes back and they begin to rebuild the temple and it was an amazing time. The second exodus had begun, the great return of God's people. The promise that was very specific is now starting to be experienced. You can read sort of one little summary statement in Ezra 1.5. Then the family heads of Judah and of Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone, key phrase, ready? Everyone whose heart God had moved prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Well, a few years later, another exodus takes place as part of the larger exodus under the great leadership of Nehemiah. The second wave of Jews returns, and they actually begin to do another thing. They begin to build the walls around Jerusalem. Now, the promise, once again, is being seen before their very eyes. You can read a summary statement in Nehemiah 12, where there's this unbelievable party. It says that there's a dedication of the wall, and they bring out all the worship leaders, and it's a huge dance party for God. It's a, it's a brilliant moment. So the temple is being worked on. The wall is being rebuilt. The land is being re-inhabited. Literally, Jerusalem is being risen from the ashes. So the promise was given during the time of Jeremiah. The promise is now being experienced in part during the time of Ezra in Nehemiah. When God promises something, he never lies. He always does it. And so it's happening. There's joy. There's celebration. There's hard work. There's faith. There's overcoming obstacles. God protects them from all sorts of stuff. Read the the story of Nehemiah. And then all this God-given faith and all this God-given focus dissipates. It dissolves. Life scatters what's been promised. Time dispels vision. 18 years after Nehemiah, Haggai, who many think actually came back with the second wave, with Nehemiah, suddenly shows up on the scene, and he's here to speak to God's people. Now, we need to ask ourselves the question at the beginning of this four-week miniseries, what happened to the hearts of the people of God? Well, simple, reality set in. God, who's always faithful, who always acts on his promises, he steps into the middle of his people's struggle, and he chooses, because he's loved, to help his people and receive, A, his own glory, and B, all the promises he had given them. 
Now, where does God start? Well, he starts by reviewing the last 20 years. Haggai 1.1 reads like this. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetal, governor of Judah, and to Josiah or Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, this actually is really important for us. This moment happens between somewhere, somewhere between August and September. This word from God happens during a religious gathering. This is happening during a large church service, and it's connected to the harvest. In this time, this is when you'd harvest pomegranates, figs, and grapes. Okay, it's very Californian. So they're gathering, okay? Verse 2, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Now, hold on, you should say very quickly, I'm confused. I thought the temple was being built. Uh, Ezra started it, correct. And Nehemiah was, yes, but the focus 18 to 20 years later has changed. Reality has set in. So God now sovereignly decides to speak to his people. It's going to be a word of a really loving father, but it is going to be a rebuke in the beginning. It's a correction to his children. He's going to bring some discipline so their relationship, that it's trust, care, blessing, will be restored. So the promises that he actually gave these children could be seen, touched, realized, and celebrated fully. Now notice something very important. Every time that God speaks, the first thing you should do is find out what name God chooses to use about himself. He says here that this is what the Lord Almighty says. This is what the Lord of angel army says. This is what the King and Lord of the universe says. So God comes as king and God comes as warrior. This is the name of God when God would go in front of his people to defend his people against all other enemies. So he comes and he says, ready? These people say. His first words are striking. They are cutting. They are shocking. It's a rebuke within itself. See, these people are his people. These people are actually his kids. But the language that God chooses to use right at the beginning reflects a problem. There is a barrier. There is an attitudinal issue taking place. They have become, to their marriage with God, non-committal, non-relational, and actually In the Hebrew text, this is a little sarcastic. In other words, think about English humor and you'll catch this. God comes along and says, I'm sorry. Let's just work this out. I'm uncreated, the author of heaven and earth, and you've decided what? These people say, the time has not yet come for my house to be built. So God's temple is unfinished, but the community by their life and actions and by the use of their time and talents and where they've put their money have actually declared with their heart and actions that God's temple is secondary and actually it's just not a priority at this time. Now here's what's so powerful and painful about this. The temple was at the heart of the promise to Jeremiah. God promised they would return and re-inhabit the land and they would be given their unique ethnic and religious identity back. Temple worship is at the heart of the Jewish faith. When Solomon's temple burned, everyone went into a 70-year depression spiritually. What are we supposed to do? And now it's being rebuilt. And then, as they're looking at the promise, they all go, "Mm, maybe not. Now here's the question, why? Why would good, intelligent, faithful, long-term people stop when it's not just pie in the sky? No, we see it. Well, there's six reasons. 
First of all, the people who are supposed to build the temple are supposed to be harvesting. They're very pragmatic. God, what do you want? Pomegranates or your house? I'm just trying to work this out. Very logical. Other people are, I'm sure, going like this. Hmm. It really wasn't a Jewish king who told us to do this. I mean, it was Cyrus and then Darius. Maybe Ezra and Nehemiah didn't hear from God at all. Maybe the promise wasn't really from heaven at all. And by the way, it really is taken much longer than than we thought. So, maybe not so much. Then, of course, there's all these other Jews who didn't come back. Actually, if you read the Old Testament, the Jews established themselves very well in Babylon. And so many people are like, I don't really want to go back. I mean, I've got a great family business. We've been here for 70 years. I've got good relationships. Do I really want to go back to that place that got burned down? I mean, you know, starting over, it's not that comfortable. Then there's other people who are going, well, actually... Things aren't so great around here. If you read the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, you will read that the people who inhabited the land after the Jews left were deeply hostile. They were slandering. They were using politics and threatening the Jews' very lives. So, you know, some pragmatic, very wise leaders will go, let's just wait for better times. Then there's the fund themselves. Actually, there's a drought going on, so where are we getting the money, God? And then, oh, interestingly, lots of people are very, very excited about their own things. So the people of God are distracted, and the people of God have bought into this thing called, well, it's not that convenient. God's not very impressed. So this is what it says in verse 3, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is, is it a time for you to be living in your penalt houses Well, my house remains in ruin. Can you imagine if God said that to you personally? Wow. I'm just asking a question. Your house or my house, which one's going to win? Now, what is a paneled house? It's interesting because scholars radically disagree on this. Some people literally believe that inside their homes, they had beautiful paneling. It's like you won the Princess Margaret lottery. You have that house. You know what I'm saying? It's Chris and Chris, the best faucets. Wow. You're living in luxury. Like, this is like house and home 101. You're like, look at my house. And God's like, yeah, I'm looking at your house. We've got problems. Other people say, well, it's not actually luxury. It actually reads in the ancient text like this. My house doesn't have a roof on it, and all of you have roofs on your house. What's the deal? Other people say, no, no. Actually, what this means is the leaders, Zerubbabel and Joshua, were using the funds of the people to build their houses and not God's house. So which is it? I have no clue. No matter. Here's the point. No matter one of those three options, God comes along and he says, the temple, the place where God's glory is, the unique center point of where heaven meets earth isn't finished, but all of you are doing great with your place. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Can you imagine God showing up in your living room and just saying that to you? Just give careful thought to your ways. Stop. Evaluate. Look at the rhythm of your life. Look at the rhythm of your time. Look at the rhythm of your watching, your tea. Like, just hold on. Where are your priorities? Are they kingdom or are they not? Are they correct? I don't think so. And then God says something quite shocking. Remember, harvest time. You've planted much, you harvest little. Have you noticed? You eat, you never have enough. You drink, you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're never warm. Amen to that this morning. You earn wages, 
only to put them in a purse with holes in it. All this hard work you do, everything you do, interestingly, brings you no permanent satisfaction. And by the way, what's really scary is the people of God had decided that their current condition was just acceptable and normal. God says it again. Give careful thought to your ways. God says, stop, breathe. Think, question, pattern. Do you see the connection? And then he says, okay, we're going to reverse this. Go into the mountains, bring down timber and build the house so I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. It's action time. As you started with Ezra 20 years ago, as you were doing with Nehemiah, now again, my family, my children, you, my chosen covenant partners, you who I elected out of all the nations, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you, step into what I already have shown you. Or as one author said, by obeying, they'll start turning their back on their own apathy and indifference by demonstrating repentance and action. Give your time, give your money, give your work, give your gifts, give your family. Let's do this. And I will take pleasure and I will be honored. A life that is God-centered is continually pushed to be other-centered. And if you deeply love God, then you, of course, want to generously keep giving to the things he's already doing. Now, it's really interesting because the word honored is what priests would use in the Old Testament. It's the word when a sacrifice was acceptable to God. I love how the Amplified translation says this in the second part. He says, I will be glorified by accepting it's done for me or my glory and by displaying my glory in the temple. See, God says, not only will I accept your worship, not only will I call it true worship, not only will I do this, I am promising as I always have that I will bring my holy presence, my very self, into what you're building. See, this is so important. I've preached this so many times. God is omnipresent. That is, God is everywhere. But at key times in history, at key times in our own personal lives or in our family or in a church or in the history of God's movement, he brings his power, his presence, he makes himself known palpably. He draws near. This is when he breaks in and says, I am here. See, don't forget, for 70 years, the greatest mourning for the Jewish people is that Solomon's temple had been destroyed. They remember 2 Chronicles 5, where the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests were overwhelmed and could not do their jobs. They remember Moses' time, where the glory of the Lord was physically in front of them and only Moses could, they're like, we have lost this. It will never be rebuilt. And God says, no, I am doing a new thing. Do you perceive it? It's right here. And I want to, in this building you're building, bring my glory back again. But unbelief and idolatry killed promise. He says, you expect much, but you see it turns out to be little. What you brought home, well, I just... Blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Uh, Because of my house, which remains in a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, on the the labor of your lands. 
Now, by the way, not all droughts are given by God, but this one is. There is a direct correlation between God, his temple, and the historic current reality of his people. Now, why does God allow this to happen? Because first and foremost, God will never share his glory with another. Second of all, he wants his kids to actually have what he promised them. But the thing that kills promises is self-sufficiency, that we can do things without God. So God steps in and says, I am going to rip out the most dangerous thing that's been with us since the garden called pride. And when you are humbled, you will come back and we will get to do this exciting thing together. Interesting, verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shetal, and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and all the people feared the Lord. Uh, they did three things. Everyone ready? They heard, they obeyed, they feared. Now, by the way, they are startled by the move of God. God refocuses his people and never forget In a Judeo-Christian worldview, fear of God is not utter dread and utter terror. It's not crouching in the corner and God's going to come over and, and like hit you in the face. No, no, no. Fear is awe. Fear is genuine trembling. Fear is respect. Fear is love. See, when God comes, he is fully holy and fully love. And at the same time, those realities mix in the moment. See, really, this is a phrase of worship. I love what Jesus' half-brother so many generations later would say, don't merely just listen to the word and deceive yourself. Do what it says. Real encounter with a real God leads to real life change. And so what do the people do? They change. And it says in verse 13, Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave the message of the Lord to the people. When they heard genuinely, not just, oh, I heard what you said. No, I have heard because I'm obeying. Then God steps in and says, now I want to promise something for you. I am with you, declares the Lord. Does God ever leave any of us or any movement that's under his name alone to do his tasks? Never. He knows we'll need his promise and his power. And he declares this, I am with you. What overcomes the guilt of our history? God's presence. What overcomes fright? God's presence. What really overcomes fear? God's presence. What overcomes all the good reasons and excuses not to obey in this time? What overcomes even good doubt? God's word and God's presence. His presence, it produces eagerness and dedication and fresh work. Now, I was studying this week and I was reminded of something. The I am with you promises come from the wilderness wanderings. When the people of God desperately needed God for daily bread every day. Now, this is what the I am with you promise means. See, we church people, when I say this, no one moved in the crowd. They're like, yeah, 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 I know that. No. This, like, this promise is chock full of promise. See, this is what I am with you means. I will protect you. I will accompany you. I will fight for you. I will guide you. Let me say that again. When God says he is with you, I will protect you. I will accompany you. I will fight for you. I will guide you. That is the power of the little statement, I am with you. Now, next verse. I love this verse. 
This is one of the most, this is a gem in the Bible. John Calvin, that great Reformed theologian, used to look at this and say, ah, now see the true sovereignty of God. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, I won't say all the titles again, and Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people, and they came and began to work on the house of the Lord their God on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year now of King Darius. 18 to 20 years later, after Ezra and Nehemiah, God steps in and the party continues. Now, this is very important, and I want you to hear this, because Ezra starts out by saying, all those God had stirred up. And now it happens again. What happens? God not only comes and calls his people again, God not only promises something to his people, he then turns around and he gives them his spirit. And he gives the spirit of God, listen, not just to the politician and to the high priest, he gives his spirit to every single person, the remnant, who decided in faith to come out of Babylon, out of comfort, back into promise. God sovereignly stirred up the DNA of core of each person. Now, to understand this, you have to read another prophet. At the same time Haggai is preaching, another guy's on the scene. It's his co-prophet, Zechariah. And there is a verse that is quoted by so many churches, but it's in context to what we're reading today. Zechariah 4.6, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, do you know it off by heart? Not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So God says, I have called you. You've begun to see the promise. I'm promising you again. And now I'm going to send my Holy Spirit upon all of you to be involved. From planning to praying to building to supporting. All must obey. All must support. All must be involved. It's a communal relationship with a communal God. So it's a communal responsibility. The planners, the priests, the people, the promise. Here we go. Now. What is C4 saying? What is God saying to us in this season, in this moment? See, a lot of you think that I'm about to beat you down, right? You've been waiting for this. You think now I'm going to give you the lecture on money. I'm not. I want, to, I want you to hear this this morning very clearly. First of all, of course, as we read Haggai chapter 1, no matter what season this church would be in, we would have to ask ourselves responsibly as people of God in 2015, God, help me to be careful about my ways. Talk to me, yes, about generosity and priorities and worship, of course. But here's the difference. Unlike last time when I preached this, I think many of us in this church have done this. I'm not wrestling with the family anymore. I think many of us have said, Lord, I am willing to consider my ways before you. I think the lordship of Jesus is growing exponentially in this church. I think many of us willingly over the last four years have prayed things like, Lord, you can do anything in my life for your glory and my freedom so the world sees Jesus clearly. I continually see that personal holiness is growing across our church. The prayer life of this church is stronger than it's ever been. And I continually, week after week, hear so many unbelievable stories of personal repentance over wrong theology, wrong actions. Time and time again, people are coming forward, new joy in their faith, 
faith, new hope, marriages being reconciled, people. I have never seen more people become Christians in this church than I have in the last year. More Christians, more baptisms, more lordship, more prayer. And then let me just say very upfront, the generosity in this church has had a huge 180. Even since I preached this two years ago, when generosity was growing in us, it is now exponentially growing in us. I think, let me go all the way back, because I've been here for a while. In 2005, when I first had the privilege and had no clue what I was doing when I took over the leadership of this church, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. When I did that, I think the majority of our church was saying, now is not the time to build the house of the Lord. I would say now in 2015, 10 years later, long, like, now is the time to build the house of the Lord. We, this is among us now. It's a completely different place. Now, are we going to be called to do greater things? Oh, of course we are. Of course. Do we still need to keep working to build the nursery for thousands to come? Yes. But can I point out that as we've been praying for many to join us, it's happening The first wave is among us. Have you seen? We've grown almost by 25% in, in the last 15 to 17 months. 14% last year, another 11 plus percent now. We, we've never seen so many people walking through our doors. But here's what I want to just say. Reality always sets in. It always gets minus 40 for a few days, right? And we get disillusioned or distracted or down or deceived. God's work doesn't seem so shiny. We're wondering, did the leaders really hear? No, listen, we just need to stop. And as God said to our spiritual ancestors, give careful thought to your ways, be faithful and expectant, we should do the same. God has said, and I will say this, is he not saying, do you not see what I've begun among you? Another wave is about to come. Are you ready? Are many of us broken? Of course. Are many of us just being faithful Christians? Of course. Do I think that more faith will be required and more openness is the promise of God? Yes. Are we fully there? Not on your life. Is there more work to be done? Oh, of course. Is there going to be a growing call for all of us to consider our ways before God with no defensiveness? Yes. God is continually prepping and actually doing what he's promised in this church. And of course he's going to come and say, let's talk about time and money and talent. See, in the next five years, let me just say this. Oh, we're going to have to give up a lot of paneled houses in this place to accomplish what God's going to do. No doubt about it. But see, God just comes and says, oh, just get ready. I'm going to call you to the mountains again, and you're going to come and start building my house. Just give careful thought to your ways. Just continually be open. And thank you for being open. But here's what I really want to preach. See, four, God says to us, I am with you. Now you go, oh yeah, 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 I know that. Because that's what you're supposed to say as a pastor leader. That's your job. We pay you for that. Okay. And actually, John, God's with every Christian. Yep, that's true. And any church that loves Jesus, you know, uh, he's with them. Yeah, and he said he'd never leave us or forsake us. We even sang it today. Yep, that's true. But that's not what I'm saying to you today. I want to remind you that God in Haggai's time was not assuring them of omnipresence. He wasn't giving them a theology lesson on what was true, that he is everywhere. No, no. He comes and he says, I am with you now. I'm with you now in this season. And I'm with you in this season for this task in this moment because I'm going to do among you what I promised you and you have begun to see. 
God is coming and saying to C4 Church, oh yes, I am with you, but I am telling you, I am with you for the task I have laid in front of this church. Think about what's happened in the last three or four years. We've confirmed our place. We wanted to move from this building, but the law shut us down. So we're staying here and doing some stuff here. And in the next three to four years, we're going to launch north, east, and west. We're going to become a compass. South, north, east, west. We're going everywhere. That's what we're going to do. We've readied ourselves for growth, planning, budgeting, management, internal communications. We've discerned with our hearts. We've looked at our values and our theology and our missions through the lens of renewal, revival, and awakening. We've embraced our mission. We've accepted the gift of a vision to reach 10,000 people, and we're growing in faith to trust God to do it. We've started to equip our community, trying to work through spiritual gifts, the good and bad of that. And this is absolutely true. The rebuilding of connections between people and C4 is exponentially happening. And we've set a course. We've changed how we've governed. We've gained our church in planning. And like Joanna said, right, we've got a roadmap for the next four and a half plus years. More baptisms, more conversions, more people connecting, more deliverances, more relationships, more people coming. I just want to say to you this morning, God says, C4, do you see in the middle of winter what I've started? There's more to come. And C4 says, the Lord says to C4, look, I'm with you. That is, I am with you uniquely in this task that I've set up before you. I have not given this task to Calvary Baptist. I have not given this task, God says sovereignly, to Hebron. I have not given this task to the sanctuary. I have not given this task to Pickering Pentecostal. Oh, we're all in this together. And God, but I have asked you to do this thing. And I'm telling you that fear, fatigue, lack of focus, fright, let me just tell you, I am with you. I'm going to protect you, guide you, and use you. So God says, consider your ways. And we are, praise God. God reminds us in the middle, I'm still with you. I'm still with you. And then here's the thing I want to say with real umph today. C4, the Lord is going to continue and in fuller measure send his spirit upon this church. Every single one of us has the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. At conversion, you are baptized in the spirit. We are all called to grow in the spirit through his character. We have spiritual gifts, yes. But just like in the time of Haggai, I want to remind you again, God promised to send his Holy Spirit to equip those people for that season, for that task. What are you saying, John? Here's what I'm saying. Second Chronicles 5 says the spirit of God would be given on all the people. This is a reminder again. In this season, God is reminding us that he is going to anoint There's a word we don't use much at C4. He is going to anoint all of C4. I will send my spirit upon the elders of C4. I will send my spirit on the pastoral lead team of C4. I will send my spirit on the staff of C4. I will send my spirit on every volunteer leader of C4. I will send my spirit on every volunteer of C4. I will send my spirit on every person who makes up C4. I will send my spirit. I will send him upon you to accomplish the task I have set out before you. It's begun. The walls have begun to be built. The temple is being built. We're considering our ways. God says, C4, I am with you. And not only am I with you, I'm going to continue and will in greater measure send the Spirit of God upon this church. Our cry as a church should continually be, Lord, send your Spirit so we can be encouraged to keep going in the middle. 
Why do we want the power of God in this church? Because when the power of God comes, God's glory comes in our lives. Here's why do we want the glory of God continually in our church, even in the boringness of life? Because when God's glory comes, everyone ready? Droughts end. Oh, let me say it again. If I was in a black church, everyone would be like up. Ready? No, but this, hear me. When the glory of God comes into a church, droughts end. I'm not talking about everyone gets financially rich. Throw that in the heresy basket. I'm talking about when God's glory comes in a church, the real things we desperately want, reconciliation with God and each other, real power happens. We keep begging God for revival because we want the drought in Durham to end. To end. And so... God says, I'm with you. I'm going to send my spirit upon you. I want to end this drought. And our prayer should be, oh God, on all levels, guard our church, guide our church, accompany our church, fight for our church, lead our church. God, make this church in this season unwavering. God, make us personally and corporately know and acknowledge your presence. God, send your spirit continually on us to do the task that you have tasked us for, which is begun, which is not yet, but we will be faithful in the middle. So on March 1st in 2005, in the middle of winter, I just want to remind all of us, here's the takeaway. God has not left us. God has not changed his mind on his task for us. And God is sending his spirit upon us. And I'm saying God is going to give a greater measure of his spirit upon us to accomplish the task he set out before us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen and amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray together as we respond and worship. Lord, I pray for all of us, no matter where we are, that you would continue to encourage us and empower us and help us to be inspired to keep going. As in the time of Ezra and in Nehemiah, where they began the good work and walls were being built and the temple was being built. Lord, would you help us and what that means here to keep going? And we do ask very directly, Lord of heaven and earth, would you begin to tell lots of individuals across this church that you're with them personally and that you're with us corporately? And we do keep asking, Holy Spirit, you are most welcome in our church. Because we know when the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus' presence comes. And we know when Jesus comes, the will of the Father always comes. So we continue to pray, O Lord, make us humble. O Lord, prepare us. O Lord, thank you for what you've done. O Lord, thank you for the promises you've given us. O Lord, equip us for the task you've given this church. All glory, and we mean this. We don't just say it because it's churchy. All glory and honor and praise be given back to God the Father for what is going to be done and has done and will be done. Our desire is for him and him alone. And all of God's people said together, amen. Let's sing together. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.